Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, a public health approach to preventing gun violence. The public health approach is a harm reduction approach, and we know that there's going to be lots of guns uh, for a long time in the United States. And so the question is, right now we're dying with these guns. How can we, more of us, live uh, with these guns? In the wake of the Las Vegas mass shooting, we speak to an expert about strategies to prevent gun violence and why it's time to lift restrictions on federally funded firearms research. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Thursday, October 5th, 2017. I'm Noah Levitt. Each week on this podcast, we talk about public health approaches to addressing a range of issues, from obesity to malaria. But what does it mean to apply that same public health approach to an issue like gun violence? That's the topic we're covering today in the wake of that horrific mass shooting in Las Vegas on October 1st. 59 people were killed and more than 500 injured, making it the deadliest shooting in modern U.S. history. Shootings like this are happening more frequently, according to David Hemingway, professor of health policy at the Harvard Chan School and director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center. I spoke with Hemingway over the phone, and you'll hear from him in a moment. We spoke about why mass shootings are occurring more frequently and how Australia took action following a mass shooting there in 1996. He also spoke about the need to lift restrictions on federally funded gun research and why doing so is a critical step toward preventing future violence. And gun policy is also a part of this. And in the second part of the episode, we'll be re-airing an interview with two of Hemingway's colleagues, Matthew Miller and Dev Ezrael. Earlier this year, we spoke with them about new research on background checks in America. But first, my conversation with Hemingway. I started by asking him what made the Las Vegas shooting so deadly. Um, I think the big factor was the weaponry uh, that... um, this uh, individual was able to fire something like nine rounds per second. Uh, The other uh, thing was that uh, nobody really knew what was going on in the sense that he was so far away uh, that they had no idea where the, you know, that that they were shooting, where the shooting was coming from, who was doing the shooting, what they could do. So I think, uh, and they were all crowded together in a in a in an area uh, where there was hardly any place to uh, hide. Mass shootings like this obviously get a lot of attention, but are we seeing an increase in the rate of mass shootings in the U.S.? I mean, are they occurring more frequently? It certainly seems that way. Now, mass shootings have no uh, precise definition. People use very different definitions. You know, four people, four more people killed. Uh, or six or more people killed, or five or more people shot, and sometimes that includes or doesn't include the perpetrator. Um, so there's no precise definition. But however you define mass shootings, they have been increasing in frequency uh, in uh, recent times. And there, I think there are two possible explanations, uh, and probably both are, have some validity. First. Um, is that I think these shootings are somewhat contagious. Uh, They get so much publicity and the shooter gets so much publicity that uh, it puts ideas into people's minds that, oh my goodness, this is something that's possible to do that I could actually do. Uh, I think, you know, 60 years ago, no one would even, uh, would not have been on people's radar that this is something that if I'm going to, you know, if I grudge, if I'm going to kill myself, that I this is something I could do or should do or might do. Um, secondly, I think because of the uh, improved weaponry, we have much more sort of military-type weapons that have more firepower, can kill more readily, is that uh, past 
shootings which would not have made it into the mass shooting category because not that many people would have died now make it into the mass shooting category because uh, it's, so, it's easy to, to wound and then kill more people. And when we talk about like more broadly about gun violence from a public health perspective, I mean, could you put into perspective for people, I mean, as you just kind of touched on, I mean, these shootings do get a lot of media attention, but how do they fit into the general kind of context of gun violence as a public health problem? This is just a small, one small part of the problem. I mean, every day in the United States, about 100 people are killed with guns. This includes suicide, homicide, uh, unintentional shootings. Uh, probably over 300 or more people are shot. Uh, and so this terrible, terrible tragedy is, uh, is uh, on the same day uh, where um, we have Las Vegas, where 50 people are shot and hundreds are wounded. There's probably more than that in the rest of the country, just on a regular basis. And you wrote in this Boston Globe op-ed, and you've talked about it extensively before, but this kind of view of addressing gun violence, addressing mass shootings from a public health perspective. What what does that mean when we talk about addressing it from a public health perspective? I think a big thing that means is that instead of focusing solely on the perpetrators, uh, you want to figure out, let's step back and figure out how we can prevent these things from occurring uh, again and again and again, and what kinds of things can we as a society do? And it's not, and it's not just law enforcement, and it's not just gun owners, and it's not just um, any group. It's like the whole society. So we're talking about what can foundations do? What can the clergy do? What can the media do? What can um, gun laws do, uh, and so forth. And uh, there's so many things we can do because the public health approach is a harm reduction approach, and we know that there's going to be lots of guns uh, for a long time in the United States. And so the question is, uh, right now we're dying with these guns. How can we, more of us, live uh, with these guns? And so I know one of the one of the examples that you point out of maybe a success story is Australia, which had this massive gun buyback program after a mass shooting of their own. So for people who are unfamiliar, can you explain what the Australian government did and then down the line what effect it had? About 20 years ago, there was this terrible mass shooting um, in Tasmania, the Port Port Arthur. Uh, And what was really important is that a conservative prime minister stepped up and said, enough is enough, and we're going to change this. And so what they did is they bought back a mandatory buyback, something like 750,000 uh, of their more, more lethal weapons. Uh, and then they st- 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 tightened uh, their gun laws in a whole variety of ways. And over the last uh, 20 years, so the 20 years before this, there I think, had been 13 uh, mass shootings in, in Australia, and since then there have been zero mass shootings. Uh, so it's, you know, couldn't ask for more of a success. Uh, the other thing that happened is that both gun homicide and gun suicide have gone way, way down. They've been uh, reduced by, I think, more than well over 50% uh, in the last 20 years. Um, so it's been, it, 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 by any measure, it looks like an incredibly successful intervention. Given kind of the current laws in the U.S., are there any strategies that maybe exist in certain states, in certain areas that have been shown to work in terms of reducing gun violence? Like what 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 works currently? So it's really hard to say because our policies aren't aren't that strong, and because guns, crime guns, are readily move from one area to another. But uh, the the evidence certainly indicates that stronger gun laws generally do much better 
than weaker gun laws. Uh, areas where there are strong gun laws typically have fewer guns, and so uh, those areas uh, have many fewer suicides because there's fewer gun suicides, fewer homicides because there's uh, fewer gun homicides and fewer unintentional uh, injuries uh, with guns. Uh, the particular laws, the one law that seems to, uh, in some studies, uh, look like it's been very beneficial is universal background checks. Right now, uh, our recent study indicates that about 20% of recent gun acquisitions, that includes inheriting guns and also buying guns, uh, there is no background check at all. Uh, so uh, it's, it makes it much too easy for any, anybody to, to obtain firearms, and clearly wrong people obtain firearms all the time. One of the barriers to gun research is this ban on federal funding of gun research. Um, I mean, can you, can you I guess, make, give an argument for why that ban should be lifted and why that ban is such a problem? So in all areas uh, in, of science, it's really important to have good data and to have good research. Um, I wrote this book a few years ago about success stories in injury and violence prevention, uh, 64 documented successes where uh, the world's been made safer uh, because of good, gun, uh, because of good um, injury prevention policy. And in virtually all those cases, uh, the data were incredibly important and the research was incredibly important and one showing that there was a problem, second showing the, the, this aggregatively what could be done about that problem and third, uh, good evaluation data to show is this really working or should we change the policies in some way. So data and research are uh, vital. To give just one example, um, the data that 20, 20 plus years ago, the data showed that 16-year-olds were at incredibly high risk for motor vehicle uh, deaths compared to 19-year-olds, uh, like they're three times the rate of 19-year-olds, 10 times the rate of 40-year-olds. And the data also showed, with analysis, of course, showing that there were two particular times when these 16-year-olds were at the most risk by far, and one was at night and one was when they were just driving with other teenagers. And so uh, a couple states uh, following the example of New Zealand said, all right, let's have 16-year-olds drive because they need experience in driving, and they, uh, but let's keep them away from these most dangerous times. And so you had a graduated driver's licensing which said you can drive, but you can't drive at night and you can't drive with only other teenagers. And then the studies, the good data and the good studies showed that this reduced uh, teenage 16-year-old deaths by uh, over 30%. And so other states said, oh, look, this is really saving you know, young people. We can do this too. And so right, very quickly, all 50 states adopted these laws. And there's been a substantial reduction in the harm uh, to, you know, that 16-year-olds now are much safer than they ever were in terms of driving. That was my conversation with David Hemingway. And you heard him mention background checks as one way to reduce gun deaths. Background checks are also one of the few areas in the gun debate where there is broad agreement among gun owners and firearms experts. But what are background checks exactly, and how can they work to prevent violence? We want to replay a story we did back in January about a new survey on gun purchases from the Harvard Injury Control Research Center and Northeastern University. That survey found that more Americans are undergoing background checks when they buy guns, but millions still don't. Take a listen to the piece. The survey of more than 1,600 gun owners represents the most comprehensive look at how people in America purchase their firearms. It found that 22% of gun owners said they purchased a gun without a background check. That's much lower than the previous estimate of 40% from a survey done in 1994. 
When a gun buyer undergoes a background check, their name is checked against a database to see if they meet any criteria that disqualify them from owning a gun, such as a felony conviction or having been committed against their will to a psychiatric facility. We spoke about the findings with Deb Ezrael, research director at the Harvard Injury Control Research Center, and Matthew Miller, co-director of the Injury Control Research Center and professor of epidemiology at Northeastern University. Miller explained the key differences between this recent survey and that 1994 survey. Our survey was really the first direct estimate of whether people said that they had a background check when they obtained their most recent gun within the previous two-year period. Back in 1994, Phil Cook and Jens Ludwig analyzed a survey that asked a related but different question. The question that was asked in 94 is whether or not you obtained a gun from a federally licensed dealer. Although they, that's generally interpreted as a proxy for having gotten a background check because it was in fact required when you're a federally licensed dealer to do a background check on anyone who is uh, purchasing a gun from you. Um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the same question. Uh, the other sort of historical piece of information that is helpful in trying to interpret our findings and whether there's been a demonstrable shift or not in the percentage of people getting background checks is that in 1994, there, um, an electronic system with centralized information went into effect. Now, what the 94 survey did is it asked people about guns they had acquired in 92 and 93 before the electronic system went into effect, when all you had to do is ask somebody, are you a felon? You know, are you, are you lawful, a lawful possessor of a gun? They could say yes or no, but there wasn't any vetting beyond that. And so it's plausible that maybe once this central electronic system went into effect, there was a shift. Uh, but the two data points we have, given how poorly gun research is funded in this country, we really only have two data points, one looking in 94 at 92 and 93, and another looking when we did in 2015 at 2014, 2013. Miller says the key findings of this survey go beyond that 22% of Americans who are buying a gun without a background check. Miller and Azrael say that many gun purchases happen online or in private transfers between two people. And what they found is that in states where there are more stringent regulations on these types of sales, gun buyers were twice as likely to undergo a background check. Here's Miller again. It's not that it's 20 or 22 percent, but that when you live in a state where laws regulate the private transfer of guns, far more people, in fact, have background checks. But but also sort of just as a further sort of clarification of what that 22 percent statistic means, it still means millions of people every year are getting guns without background checks. Because in this country, there are about 50, 55 million people who personally own guns. So 22% of people who acquired the, the guns in the last two years, which is about 70 million transfers in the last two years, 22% of them don't have background checks. We're talking about millions and millions of guns. Miller and Azrael say background checks are one area of the gun control debate where there is actually broad consensus among firearm experts and gun owners. According to a recent New York Times survey, gun experts said that requiring all sellers to run background checks is one of the most effective ways to reduce firearm deaths. And 85% of registered voters surveyed by the Times were also in favor of universal background checks. Deb Azrael says that background checks are not a cure-all and won't eliminate illegal gun markets, but she says there are strong arguments in their favor. If a background check makes it marginally more difficult for someone who isn't qualified to possess a gun to get one, 
you know, sort of economics would suggest that that the price of that, the price of a gun to someone who isn't qualified to get one goes up in terms of time or in terms of money. And that at, you know, there will be people sort of, you know, theoretically um, and, and probably actually who are thus deterred from getting a firearm. It's not as though by instituting background checks, you eliminate the possibility that there are illegal gun markets. But I think it does sort of demonstrate sort of federally or at the state level that gun owners have a responsibility, have a, a communal responsibility to assure that the, the, anybody they give a gun to, anybody they sell a gun to, is qualified to possess that gun. It's a sort of a basic sort of standard obligation if, if one wants to have a, a lethal weapon and to, to give it, you know, to pass it on to someone else. To me, that's the... That's a significant um, benefit of these sorts of laws, in addition to making it marginally harder for unqualified possessors to get a gun. And that was a piece from January 2017 with Matthew Miller and Deb Ezrael talking about guns and background checks. If you want to learn more about their work and the work of David Hemingway, we'll have a link to the Harvard Injury Control Research Center on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And David Hemingway also wrote a Boston Globe op-ed in the wake of the Las Vegas shooting, which clearly outlines what a public health approach to gun violence would look like. We'll also have a link to that on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And that's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. 